Dr. Fox Harrell uh, of MIT, a current CASBIS fellow, uh, his imagination computation expression lab at MIT is both in the computer science and artificial intelligence uh, laboratory as well as in uh, the humanities and arts and social sciences, the first uh, professor to, to be straddling those two worlds. Uh, we're in an age where uh, we all, the full range of human activities are delivered to us through uh, computer systems on a daily basis, uh, and yet it's too rare that the engineering and the social dynamics and the human interactions uh, are, are looked at at the same time. And that's exactly what uh, we're going to do tonight. Let's have a big round of applause for Dr. Fox Harrell. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Uh, so thank you for the gracious introduction, Michael, and also thanks everybody from the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at CASBIS for making this possible, the organizers here at the Interval, as well as the Long Now Foundation, and finally the Annenberg Foundation for support. Uh, so today I'll be talking about this idea of coding ourselves, coding others, imagining social identities through computing. Uh, so as Michael mentioned, I run the Imagination, Computation, and Expression Laboratory, or ICE Lab, at MIT. And what we do is build systems for creative expression, cultural analysis, and social empowerment. And so these range from interactive narrative systems, gaming systems, social media systems, and most, most importantly, new forms, possibly unanticipated by any of those. So we built a wide range of uh, types of work. I'm not gonna talk about uh, all of these kind of systems today, but I'll show you a few uh, highlights with a particular uh, focus. Uh, so I uh, also wanna mention, just uh, to give you a sense of the scope of the work, some of the kind of work that I've been doing most recently during this year at CASBIS at Stanford. And so one area that the work has shifted into is machine learning approaches, so artificial intelligence approaches to better understand our identities on computers and the relationships between them. You know, so the relationships between social networks and games, the way these systems interoperate, the way in which you, to participate in a forum, you have to log in through a social networking account, and how all these systems begin to connect. I've also been thinking about the impact of the work, and so that's one of, uh, one of the statements I gave at the beginning of the year, is how to take this uh, out into the world and, be, and uh, have the kind of impact on, on the communities uh, of interest where it could be useful. And so one of the kind of initiatives we've been uh, moving into is using virtual identities uh, in public schools to support broader participation in, in computer science by diverse groups, and seeing students' identities in the real world as intrinsic to their identities as practitioners of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. 
And then the other side of it is uh, emotion. Yeah, so thinking about the way to bring the affective dimensions in. Uh, and so one of the works I've been doing is a collaboration with director Karim Ben Khalifa uh, that's collaborating on a virtual reality project to engender mutual understanding and empathy uh, in war, starting with uh, Gaza. But he's a, a, a renowned photojournalist and all the major periodicals who's been in Rwanda, the Balkans, and, and all of these areas. So we're collaborating together to think about how to engender empathy around these topics. And one of the kind of common threads in this work is the idea that uh, uh, cultural values and cultural worldview are built into all computing systems. And how can we begin to engage more diverse cultural values and have these kind of systems uh, uh, reach their expressive potential and potential for empowerment? And so that's one of the main topics in the book Phantasmal Media that, that I wrote. Uh, uh, and really, and uh, although today I'll be focusing on the issue of re representation of identity in media such as uh, uh, video game technologies, especially, it's really a kind of statement more broadly about the expressive potential of the medium. So here's the structure of the talk. You know, so I'll begin just with a brief introduction. Why I call the book Phantasmal Media? What is a phantasm for me? The special case of phantasms of social identity and what we're doing about it in the lab, what we're building. Uh, so to begin with, let's start uh, in, in the, uh, the real world, off the computer. Uh, so the idea is that uh, when we begin to think about identity uh, more, more broadly, it's nothing new. It's not that this is an area that, that has never been studied uh, before. It's not anything that we're not accustomed to. Uh, we know that there are stereotypes that, that exist uh, out there within the world, whether they're because of issues such as race, ethnicity, uh, gender, hair color, could be uh, any sort of topic that, uh, that engenders stereotyping. And these kind of topics have been long studied in fields like uh, sociology. You know, so W.E.B. Du Bois talking about the idea of double consciousness. Right? So this is where you see yourself differently than how the world sees you sometimes. Right? Or Irving Goffman and the idea of impression management. They're trying to, uh, in a dramaturgical way, think about the way that uh, you can manage the way that others begin to see you and how you might be stigmatized or not within society. But of course, these kind of identities and phenomena have entered into some uh, uh, new realms and new configurations. Right. 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 And so important new kinds of questions have emerged. Right. So how do data structures and algorithms, you know, how does the technical system begin to implement long existent and newly emergent cultural phenomena? So for example, the idea of, of categorization in society so th this is one example that somebody wrote. You know, this is a system that uh, uh, scrapes publicly available data and begins to categorize people in ways that they might not have expected to be categorized uh, previously when they posted that data. You know, so who wants to get fired? Uh, who's hung over? Right, so this is just scraping their publicly available data, aggregating it, and then grouping them into these categories. Right, the point being that these are algorithmically generated categories. Nobody checked the box like a friend or relationship status. Right? These are ones that have been uh, 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 developed by, by, by the developer through the lens of an algorithm. And here's another case. You know, so these are two avatars in Second Life. Uh, the, the uh, virtual world system. And you'll notice that uh, one of the avatars here, actually, it looks quite a bit more uh, luminous you know, in, in some ways in terms of skin than the other. And the issue is that uh, you know, the default skin, uh, this default light reflectance model is actually not optimized for skin tones such as this. Somebody know, uh, wrote a new light reflectance model, a kind of new shader within the system in order to achieve this kind of, uh, uh, th this kind of appearance that, that you see in, in the other image. 
Right, so the point is that there needed to be an algorithmic uh, uh, innovation here. Right? It's, it's not something that, that, that is strictly a kind of uh, visual uh, issue. There is a kind of algorithmic issue underlying it that, that in fact, when you look at the striking distance difference between the two, you can begin to say uh, that, uh, that, that there's some form of uh, bias you know, built into the system, at least in terms of uh, appearance. And so yeah, the question is then, uh, what do these kind of thinkers have to say about some of these kind of emergent phenomena, and how can we begin to think about some of these kind of phenomena uh, in a new way? Some being long existent, such as stereotyping, and some that have emerged specifically uh, within these, uh, these new media. Uh, and, and these are exactly the kind of questions that I'm interested in. You know, so you could think about it, the book is organized into three sections, subjective computing, cultural computing and critical computing. So of course, subjectivity, uh, culture, and criticality being things that computing is always associated with. Uh, in fact, it's not, usually. Uh, right. But uh, the idea is that my research works on enabling us to better understand cultural phenomena at the co code level and building computational models and systems to analyze and simulate cultural phenomena. So you could say that uh, the research aims to bridge a kind of analytical gap. So it's to bridge the gap between cultural meaning and these phenomena such as double consciousness, a sense of self, impression management, uh, stereotyping, et cetera, and the algorithms and data structures that underlie systems such as social networking profiles, e-commerce accounts, avatars, and other forms of virtual identity. Uh, so to move towards, uh, towards this area, I want to start just with some basic intuitions for the way that I think about this medium, the way I think about uh, a meaning and how it's conveyed more generally. So we'll start with, with a kind of challenging question for you, which is, uh, so what does this sign mean? Uh, so someone said woman uh, here. <laughs> right, right. Someone said, I saw a sign like that uh, not too long ago. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, you know, so it's, it's, not, it's not controversial you know, for many people, but the question is, you know, how do we make sense of this particular sign? And, and so, of course, we're drawing upon some particular worldview and drawing some kind of specific concepts from that worldview that's being integrated with a sensory mental image. And so what I mean by that is we have a, men a mental image of what the sign could represent. We have the sensory image that's right there in front of us. And we immediately understand that sign as meaning something like a, a woman or, or referring to the, the fact that this is a place that, uh, that, that women can be. Uh, now you might say, uh, well, we don't all necessarily share the same, the same worldview, but something interesting that happens here is that even if you don't believe that women do or should wear clothes uh, uh, like this necessarily, it's not the fact that you couldn't immediately uh, apprehend the meaning of the sign. Now, uh, this sign, uh, however, is another sign that's actually uh, developed at the Indian Institute of Technology used in hospital systems in India that means the exact same thing. Right, so you have a similar kind of process, you know, the, the meaning and what I'm calling a phantasm for reasons that will become clear, uh, it happens in the same way. And this is, a, this is another sign that's used in Oman. Right, so, so we have another sign here. And so the idea is that, in fact, when we begin to look at this sign from multiple worldviews, some of the biases and, and, the, and the intrinsic beliefs built into the original one begin to be revealed. Uh, because you didn't say to yourself, uh, was, uh, and that's what I'm calling a phantasm. Because in fact, it's a kind of semi-visible uh, execution of, of a, a, a worldview through the sensory mental image that we're encountering out there uh, in the wild, so to speak. 
Because you could have thought that this is somebody wearing a kilt, this is somebody wearing a cape, a cape right? Something like this. Uh, and in fact, interestingly, uh, you know, I wrote the, this book you know, back, well, it came out in 2013, but there's actually been an ad campaign that's right, taken advantage of this idea you know, recently. Right? It, was, it was never addressed. You know, so it's nice to see uh, that these ideas uh, 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 out there. Uh, and this is exactly the meaning. And the other idea is that. Also, phantasms uh, exist that encode worldview, but we can also develop phantasms that are new ones that are uh, a kind of empowering phantasm. So some of, the, some of the power of the computational system I'm interested in is that of revealing phantasms, also creating new phantasms, and developing critical awareness about them. Now, in terms of computing, of course, we rely upon these same kind of uh, ideas. Right, so an image like this, uh, uh, somebody being represented on, uh, an, as a Nintendo Ami character, and up through uh, images like this, uh, a kind of more robust representation, or an image like, like this. These come from uh, well-known Final, Final Fantasy uh, uh, role-playing games out of Japan. And uh, one of the issues that I'm interested in, though, is the fact that these kind of phantasms then uh, persist as people begin to use these uh, systems. And we know a lot about the kind of values that, go in, that, uh, that, that lie behind these kind of systems. You know, so this is a classic study by Kenneth and, and Mamie Clark, you know, start from the 40s, in which African-American school children were asked uh, famously, which doll looks like you? Which doll do you prefer? Which doll is a good doll? And uh, uh, with uh, uh, a high degree of probability, you know, uh, uh, they, they actually chose this doll that you see the kid choosing, uh, cho choosing here. Sometimes they ask, which doll looks nice? Which doll uh, uh, is a good doll? Now, which doll looks like you? you know, the few children that rebelled actually uh, ran out of the study you know, crying when they realized the fact that uh, you know, they're enmeshed within this kind of uh, worldview. Yeah, so this, and the point here isn't just to recap the study, which is a kind of well-known study, but in the book, one of the things that I do is begin to think, how can we look at these phantasms in a semi-structured way that's useful for thinking about computing systems? And so this is just a, a kind of cursory breakdown, just thinking in terms of the types of elements, the attributes, and so forth, just to show that when we think about these issues on the computer, we actually have to think about them in a way that they're instantiated in data structures and the way that they're, that they're implemented when you begin to have this doll immediately apprehended as uh, being the, the nice-looking doll. So why the concept of uh, phantasmal media to get at these kind of uh, phenomena? Well, the cognitive science concept of the phantasm, again, emphasizes the role of worldview and values in computing systems and can aid in analyzing and designing uh, computing systems. And so the book pins this down in, uh, in all the detail with the nomenclature and scientific and engineering background, as well as references to, across the arts. So, uh, so I won't focus on all the details here, but I wanted to give you a sense of what I mean when I talk about phantasms. And so in particular for this talk, although remember phantasms can refer, like the word concept, they can refer to, uh, to anything or the word sign. It can be anything that's out there uh, in the world. But today I'll be focusing on phantasms of identity in particular, uh, phantasms of social identity. And of course, identity isn't limited just to uh, the normative forms of identity, such as race, ethnicity, gender, and so forth, but also posture, fashion, uh, body language, right? So all the personality, all these nuanced forms of identity. So my question, when I started a project, was called the Advanced Identity Representation Project, is not because the computing system is what is uh, advanced. It's in fact because the way that we navigate this in the real world is so advanced and nuanced. Can we begin to move from the regular structures of the system uh, to achieve uh, and respond to some of the kind of nuance that people have in the real world? So just to give an example of what I mean here, 
Uh, let's look at one particular uh, computer game uh, and some of the kind of problems with uh, these identity phantasms that we find. So this is a game called Elder Scrolls IV Skyrim. So uh, how many people are familiar with, uh, with this game? Right, yeah, so I would say about 40% of people uh, raised, uh, raised their hands here. And so for those who aren't familiar, it's an extremely popular game, and this is a narrow lens for discussing its uh, impact, but you could think about it this way. On, the, on its best weekend, Star Wars made $7 million. Right, so Star Wars, adjusted for inflation now, made $27.2 million on its best weekend. Now, Skyrim, on its first day of a release, adjusted for inflation to today, made $217 million on the first day. <laughs> right, right. So, so again, that's a kind of narrow lens, but just to give a sense of the kind of scope of, the, of this medium and its relationship to, say, the, the film industry. So in, in this best-selling uh, role-playing game, uh, some interesting phenomena where characters such as the Nords, the ostensible Norwegians, uh, or the Red Guard, the ostensible uh, African characters within the game, uh, are subjected to a form of stereotyping. So just in terms of description, the Red Guards are described basically in the essentialist stereotype of the black athlete. They're called, quote, the most talented warriors in Tamriel. The Red Guard are also physically blessed with hardy constitutions and quickness of foot. And so basically, in game-playing terms, it translates into bonuses to their running and jumping abilities <laughs> as you begin to play throughout, throughout the game. So how many people who have played Oblivion have also played the sequel, uh, Skyrim? Right, yeah, so a couple of people here. So those who have played the sequel, yeah, so this is a deep, I should mention, you can, there's such a fine grain of customization you can do with these avatars. This is a default before anything is changed, but you can change you know, the shape of the bridge of the nose and then the flare of the nostrils and, uh, and skin tone. You can change it in, in, a, in an immense number of ways. And so the default red guard in Skyrim, do you think that uh, the situation has changed, improved? Uh, so do you remember what it looks like? Uh, right. So it's a topic I've been writing about for, for a little while. Anyway, the $217 million the sequel, uh, selling sequel I mentioned, uh, Skyrim. Actually, the default avatar looks like this now. Uh, so before you make any change uh, uh, to it. Uh, but, uh, so, but what I would claim is that, in fact, uh, this, uh, this avatar is, uh, is neither better nor worse. Right. So why is it neither better nor worse? Right. Well, this is the reason, because this is just the front end. Right? This is just the, the graphical uh, front end. There's been a number of critique of this. It's not as if it doesn't matter, critique of Laura Croft's body image and Tomb Raider and this sort of thing. But what I'm interested in is the back end, you know, focusing on the values that's on the, in, in the back end uh, uh, data. And so I'll tell you just a little bit about, uh, about my interest in this. Yeah, so when we begin to look at these attributes for strength, intelligence, willpower, agility that determine your abilities with, with, within the game, you know, so for example, your, your abilities to, to, to fight or, uh, or uh, to exhibit stealthy behaviors or magic and so forth. Well, let's just take a look at this particular row for intelligence. And notice that if you happen to be the Norwegian, the ostensible Norwegian Nord that I mentioned, well, you're 30 points uh, uh, intelligence. That's 20 points less intelligent than the Bretons, the ostensible French within the game. Uh, yeah, right, right. Uh, yeah, the Imperials are, are the, the, the Romans. Uh, you know, they sort of stand in for the Romans. Similarly, the Red Guard are also 20 points less intelligence, uh, intelligent than the Bretons. If you're an orc female, you're 10 points more intelligent by default than your male counterpart. Right. Right, so you have a number of these kind of values that are just built into the infrastructure of the game. Now, this can change over time. You can practice some behaviors uh, more than others and get better at skills you might not be optimized for but many players are, are, are what are, have been termed in, in the literature and game studies achiever players. That means they want to maximize all the statistics of their character uh, within the game. 
And if they play this as one of these type of uh, races, they never can do so. But of course, this is just default stats. So let's look a little bit deeper under the hood of some of these games. This is another game called Neverwinter Nights, which is an older game, but also a bestseller. Uh, and so let's begin to look at the data structure to represent characters within this. And so there is a data structure for race. Sometimes people think this is my gloss. You know, if you look in the technical documentation, you know, that the, the, the data structures actually are called you know, race, phenotype, and, and so forth. And so when you when you change the the race within with, with uh, the data about race of your character, should that impact the way that your character looks? So yeah, so some people are nodding their your, your, their heads, uh, but. In fact, changing the race will not change the appearance of your character, but many items have racially based bonuses. And what about phenotype? You know, what should that represent? And I'm sure you have a number of ideas about this, but probably you didn't think that it just determines of whether your character is of normal shape or a larger shape. What about gender? How many genders do you think are represented in the data structure within this game? Right, so people say that too. Uh, you know, sometimes people guess you know, one or three. Uh, in fact, it's uh, five. You know, there are characters that are male, female, both other, and none. Although, <laughs> although uh, if you happen to, to be uh, male, both other, or none, you have a male body type. So five different uh, genders, 80% of which are male. <laughs> Right, and uh, yeah, so, so these kind of issues, you know, uh, of course, they're just, uh, again, like a phantasm. People are building these systems that are based uh, on the worldviews that, that are out there. Sometimes it's conventions around the, the, the medium. And uh, so what we're trying to do is develop systems that are, are more flexible and nuanced in terms of how you represent the, these kind of issues, also allow creative, uh, critical engagement with them. And one final thing I'll say, I'll say before going on to our, what our systems uh, uh, do in this area is that these, it's uh, not just a kind of casual interest because uh, most people have some type of virtual identity you know, these days, whether it's an e-commerce account, uh, a social networking profile, or an avatar in a virtual world or, or game. And these impact our real world, uh, our real world engagement with each other. So we've done studies say, of uh, more than 1,400 people uh, in which we found that in using a, a learning game, the kind of avatar you have actually impacts performance and engagement significantly. Uh, at Stanford, where I've been working for the year, uh, Jeremy Valenson is a professor there who has a, a kind of theory called the Proteus effect with his former student, uh, Nick Yee, that suggests that people change their real world behavior based upon their avatar's behaviors. So if you use an attractive avatar, you actually change your interpersonal distance with others uh, in, in, the in, the, in, in the real world, or you might change your exercise behavior if you exercise with, within the virtual world. Uh, so he actually looks at the ways in which real world uh, you know, changes to your real-world behavior uh, occur based on just having a different type of avatar in a virtual world. So what we're trying to do about it, uh, well, we build two types of systems. We build systems for analysis, uh, uh, you know, that's theory, you know, to, to analyze phenomena uh, online, and systems for expression, new ways to model experiences related to identity. So I'll talk just a little bit about one of the, just one of the systems for, for analysis. Uh, and again, we also analyze social, social networks and, and so forth, but I'll focus just on uh, a gaming example for continuity. And so you, you saw uh, these stats from uh, Skyrim. And so what we did was perform a machine learning technique called archetypal analysis. So some of you might be familiar with clustering algorithms uh, in AI that try, try to find you know, some similar characteristics for, uh, for, uh, for, for different objects within your data uh, that could be users. And this is a little bit different. It tries to describe the data set in terms of a set of archetypes. So it's used in sports analysis recently. So for example, in the NBA, you might characterize, you might find three archetypes, a rebounder, a slasher, and a bench warmer. 
Right, right. And every player can be determined, it can be described as some percentage of each of those archetypes statistically found within, within the data. And so that's what we did in, the, in this system. And there's, it's kind of an art and a science in the sense that you try to find this, the number of archetypes that can best describe your data. So we fed the system you know, all of the data for the default stats according to uh, race and gender within uh, the Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion. You know, we found that three is a good number of archetypes to describe it. If you use too many archetypes, you have overfitting, and so you're just attending to uh, the kind of anomalous data. So we, so we found that three was a good number. And uh, uh, I, I won't go into you know, all, all the details. So basically, he's using a technique called residual sum of squares. But, but we were able to categorize. You know, so you'll see here the Nord male is a 97% archetype one. Uh, you know, here and just 3% archetype three. The archetypes that we found actually correspond to well-known game, game, sort, sort of a, uh, a gaming archetypes. So one is physically oriented with high strength and endurance. That was a fighter. Another one is the mage. That one has high intelligence. Uh, uh, and another one is thief, the high uh, agility and the sort of things that help you to be stealthy. And the interesting thing here is so we've plotted the red are the male characters, the black are the female characters. We've plotted them uh, here. And so you can see that uh, two of the three archetypes, this is a ternary plot graph, uh, uh, two of the three archetypes here uh, only have red dots on them. You know, female, it only fits one of the archetypes uh, here. And the red guard and nords that you saw are clustered uh, uh, around here in this physical type. All right, yeah, so, so the, the long and, and, and short of it, and we could analyze this more, but what I just wanted to call your attention to is, first of all, the statistical distribution of stats correspond to traditional role-playing game roles. That's uh, not surprising. But uh, just as one example, the African-American like uh, red guards are stereotyped as a physical fighter with no characteristics of the intelligence-oriented mage. And bias towards a male gender could be observed because uh, the male characters are, uh, in general, close to the archetypal ways of, of playing. Right, so, so that's just one kind of analysis. We've analyzed social status and other sort of things uh, in uh, social networking sites, but, but I just wanted to give an example of some of the analytical work. We've also done work to model experiences in, in new types, in, in new ways. And so I'll tell you a little bit about that. These are systems for, for expression where we create our own platforms and our own experiences using them. So first I'll talk about uh, Genie, a gestural narrative interaction engine, and a game called Mimesis made using it. And secondly, Chimeria, which is, if, you, if you're familiar with the idea of a, of a graphics engine, such as Unity or these kind of systems that help with implementing 3D graphics, you could think of Chimeria as an engine for modeling social identity. So the, the Genie platform is one that allows for gesture-driven interaction. You know, so the idea is that one way of conveying cultural identity is through the way that people use you know, gesture across uh, cultures. And so it builds touchscreen-based touch uh, interactive narratives that can say model narrative structures, model certain cinematic conventions, enable gesture input, in, input to drive the story, and, and demonstrates expressive nonverbal interaction. So I'll just give uh, one, one example of what this looks like. This isn't a fully fleshed out game, but just a, a, a demo made using it. So, so starting from the long shot, we have a medium shot here. We have two characters that are interacting. We can interact with any kind of objects that are on the stage. The characters have bundles of emotion called sentiments that we've represented, both ex externally expressed and ones that are only represented internally. Right, so it's a continuous time, so it can use event triggers or be, or be uh, uh, based on turn taking. Yeah, so we have the characters that are interacting. We're showing the passage of uh, time here. We can go to a close-up shot, 
and, uh, and begin to think about facial expression, actually go into her thought space uh, here. Think, if she's thinking about things that are on the stage, changing the way that she feels about those things that were on the stage now. And so when she gets back uh, out, she's thinking about the guy's hat. What do you think about the hat uh, now? Well, uh, uh, you don't even want to know what I'm thinking about the hat <laughs> just, just now. Yeah, so the, the idea is that it's a kind of way to drive the system where you could imagine, rather than using a controller-based interaction in, in a game, you can use a kind of culturally nuanced form of interaction, such as navigating the world in terms of your attitude, your eye rolling, your body language, your posture, and, and, so, and so forth. Uh, and so one of the things we began uh, doing was thinking about, well, how could we use this to address uh, uh, social, different types of social issues? And so uh, with a group of my students, we built a platform uh, and built one game uh, uh, you know, with it. So Mimesis is a particular game, but it could be customized uh, differently to, to address issues of everyday discrimination uh, called the microaggression. So what this does is take from literature on the idea of racial microaggression, these everyday you know, kind of covert uh, uh, or uh, uh, forms of discrimination that are usually dismissed as minimally harmful. This also comes out of literature in, in clinical psychology. So it could be micro-assaults, you know, sort of subtle forms of name-calling, micro-insults, you know, so ignoring somebody in, in a restaurant or this sort of thing, or uh, uh, also micro-invalidations, uh, and so you know, communications that exclude, uh, exclude people uh, in certain ways or nullify their ex experiential reality. You know, what you think happened uh, just, in fact, didn't happen. Uh, and, and so forth. And to give you a sense of these microaggressions, it's a, uh, I'll uh, mention just a few because they've been described as falling into certain types of uh, themes. So I'll, I'll read some of them. You know, so for example, alien in, in own land. You know, so this is an example. So for example, an Asian American person being asked constantly, you know, being told, you speak good English, you know, where are you from? How did you learn to speak so, so, so well? Tell me about your culture, it's so exotic. You know, you know, these, these kind of interactions. A uh, description of intelligence, uh, maybe to the same person, uh, you must be good at mathematics, or, or, right? Or can you help me with this problem? You know, or or, or uh, assumption of criminal status would be another one, clutching a handbag when somebody's from a stigmatized category and enters your space, you know, the, 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 this, this sort of thing. All right, so again, you know, the, these are often dismissed as minimal, minimally harmful, but clinical psychologists have found them to be significantly detrimental to health and happiness, stress, anxiety, and so forth. And they also found that there are a number of ways that people typically respond to them. Uh, well, I added one, which is being uh, oblivious. You know, but the, one, one that they, the ones that they discuss are so being confused. You know, so when somebody asked me to move to the back of the bus, uh, did they really mean any, any, anything by it? You know, or, or are they just making space for some, somebody else? Uh, being suspicious that you know, I should have said something you know, in that moment, but I didn't think of the right thing to say right there. So sort of stewing in it, or being uh, uh, aggressive back in in response, and, and in fact, it's not the case. It's not the case that any of these are always going to be satisfactory with it within that kind of a situation. And so, what we did, well, you, you notice these octo uh, octopuses and the octopuses uh, uh, here. So we created a game in which we use a mimic octopus, a type of octopus that can imitate other creatures, and, and model this phenomenon of, of microaggression. Yeah, so these sea creatures, we use emotion-driven gestures to drive, you know, via the multi-touch screen to drive the dialogue. Particular responses depend on the octopus's uh, mood. Uh, and the players explore the experience of microaggression through this narrative dialogue. And so the endings can change. So you could, depending on how you play, you could be an assimilationist, an activist, and, and so forth. And the endings are determined based on, first we try to figure out a little bit if people are aware of these experiences. 
your trajectory over the cor course of the encounter, whether you've been more open and moved to being more closed or, or vice versa, or more positive and moved to being more negative. And, and that's within a single encounter as well as your trajectory across all of the encounters. Uh, as well as looking at, are, are, you, are you trying to fit in or not within the scenario? So we built a multi-touch version, uh, but we also built a version online. So uh, I'll, I'll show uh, the, the, you know, the demo video that suggested that, that I should uh, uh, you know, not, not run a system online here, but it's on our website. So if you go to, you know, I'll give the URL at the end so you could go and play the game for yourself. And so to begin with, we just show uh, one scenario. So this is before you're beginning to interact, just to see if you're sort of aware of this kind of phenomenon. So the jellyfish says, hey, you, come here to the octopus. Yes, uh, what is it? Well, you're a genius, right? Put that big brain of yours to work and help me open up this stubborn scallop I'm starving. Well, you know, just because I'm a cephalopod, that doesn't make me a genius, <laughs> as it says. Well, fine, uh, thanks for nothing. All right, and so that's the end of this little scenario. And so what we do then is just ask the user uh, a couple of questions. Right, so describe the scenario you just witnessed. Uh, what would you call this type of, uh, of scenario and, and so forth? <laughs> Have you experienced this type of scenario? So it's very quick. Actually, in an early version of this, we set your initial mood based upon, uh, upon your actual music preferences in, in, in social network, <laughs> if, if you like. And we've taken that out and put it in another system to streamline it. Uh, but the other systems on our site as well. And so you have a series of interactions. The idea is to convey the systematicity of this type of experience. Because just being asked, where are you from, one time, right? you don't know what the person's motivation is is it discriminatory or not, but the kind of repeated encounter, every time you walk into a space, uh, uh, you're not from here, are you? you know, this, this, this sort of thing is what we want to convey. And so each creature represents a different family of microaggression. Right? So this is the assumption of skill. Your, your tentacles are so elegant. It assumes I am skillful just because of how I look, you, you, you think to yourself. Uh, and you have to explain, well, I'm an octopus, and this is uh, the way I am. <laughs> Sorry we don't get many of your type around here. So how do you stink then? <laughs> Right, and so you see you're doing the gestural interaction uh, again. So now we're being you know, positive. So positive and open is oblivious, uh, oblivious. So I don't sting, I just catch my prey by sneaking up on it. Interesting, uh, your tentacles are so strange, <laughs> and, and so forth. And so we move on to the ending of the particular, uh, uh, to the, of the particular scenario. So you hope your colorful patterns brighten the water a little. That brightness may help to expand the minds of creatures like that one. And, and so moving on to, to yeah, so yeah, we get to the, you know, each, again, each creature represents a different family microaggression. So you know, here you have the alien in own land in, in, in your tidal zone, the seahorse, we don't see many octopuses around here. Right, so we're taking an aggressive response. Here is ignorant of the reality of its surroundings. Well, I've lived here my entire life. Have you? Well, you don't act like it, uh, and, and, and so forth. Yeah, oh, your patterns are so lovely. They're quite exotic. Right. And so it goes on like this. And then finally, it's not a game that you win or lose. It's just meant to, again, convey the systematicity of the, of the experience. And you have a, a kind of poetic reflection at, at, at the very end. Uh, right. That's just about the trade-offs. It doesn't point a finger to you and say you are biased or not. The experiences were familiar. You return to your home among the fronds and the sunlight. You feel slightly altered, as though your skin has changed shape and you have adapted to, to fit it. And, and so forth, all the way to the end. You came out of every encounter with a sense of camaraderie, since you were always able to fit in. So a kind of assimilationist ending. 
Right, and, and one of the ideas is that uh, people can then go in. Also, the students can uh, reskin this. They can go in and write new dialogue. Yeah, they can expand the dialogue, create new creatures. If they're interested in a more social, uh, social realist setting, you replace the, octopi the octopuses with, with, uh, with photographs and, and so forth. So it's extensible. And so I'll conclude with just talking about one final platform that, that we created. The, uh, I, sh I should mention that the Genie platform, that's a Creative Commons uh, 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 license. So if people are interested in playing with it, you could contact me. And so the Chimera system is a bit different. And so I want to just give you a sense of what it begins to model uh, related to Phantasm's social identity. And so to give you that sense, imagine you're playing a game, and initially you want to play as, as a knight. But you're interested in magic and begin dabbling a little bit in magic and, and have some of the skill set of both. And you realize you don't like this sort of esoteric magic stuff and go back just to practicing physical combat. But now physical combat has lost its luster. And so you realize your true identity and decide to go, as they say, full mage. Right, so, uh, yeah, so imagine another scenario. You're listening to your favorite music streaming system and uh, you have uh, and you listen to strictly UK punk rock music. You decide to dabble a little bit in bebop jazz. You go back to listening to uh, punk rock music and then go uh, full uh, bebop, uh, as they say. Yeah, right. Yeah, so uh, the support, uh, you know, so the idea is that what's happening is there's gradients with, uh, uh, within categories, say moving from the margins to the center of category and movement between categories. And that's what, what our platform helps to mathematically model, you know, this kind of movement between categories. Categories aren't always imposed from the top down. If you have these characteristics, you're within that, that, that category. Yeah, and I, I won't go into depth about the architecture. Suffice to say, you can create your own, your own systems with kind of your own rule sets about different categories, as well as uh, going outside to pull in data from elsewhere, it's like going to the web and so forth, whether Roby Core for, 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 for a, a music that's the engine behind the All Music Guide or bringing in clips from uh, YouTube and, and, and so forth. And so we built one scenario using, using the system called a, a Gatekeeper, which uh, models some of the phantasms related to social uh, categories. And so I'll tell you just a little bit about this particular scenario. Again, in Chimera, you could have any number of social categories and any number of configurations. To make it simple, we started with two categories. In a, and it's a kind of typical game-like scenario. We called them Sylvans and Brushwoods. So the Sylvans are a kind of a people within our game called Gatekeeper that love uh, poetry and on, on average, they love fine clothing and, and they love to speak with a kind of elevated diction where the brushwoods on average are, are, are uh, described by, uh, by other people as liking just good hearth tales and earthy clothing and, and so forth. Now remember that we separate the, the front end from the back end, so they could have looked like anything. They don't have to look like elves and hobbits. Uh, uh, right, right. Uh, uh, but but uh, suffice to say that we just created two categories for ease of, uh, uh, of grasping the ideas. Now, we separate out categories into what we're calling abstract and concrete. So imagine the abstract categories, that's a social configuration. You could have one group that's considered, say, uh, oppressed or privileged, you know, that's, or accepted and discredited. You could have a uh, you know, different uh, class structure, you know, working class, the upper class, and, and, and so forth. So you could have whatever kind of configuration you want there. And we separate out the concrete categories, and we describe them in terms of prototypes. And so that means you could run it once and set the brushwood to be the accepted, run it again and set the, the sylvan to be accepted have different cities, or even for different characters, have different kind of hierarchies uh, th th that exist. And, so, and also, not all brushwoods have to be the same, so we have a number of features, discrete and range, height, speaking ability, clan, gender, et cetera. 
And so to model group uh, membership, you could think about it like this. So there's only such a thing as a sylvan, a prototypical sylvan under a particular worldview. And so a prototypical sylvan would be someone known as a tall people on average that, that are judged from afar to be lovers of uh, finery and elaborate poetry, right? So it's tagged as sylvan, but has a certain height value of, let's say, 70, the same with clothing and speaking, and similarly for a prototypical brushwood. Uh, now, when we implement category gradients, you can also have phenomena such as uh, this, right? So you have someone that's tagged as a brushwood, but also uh, uh, you know, likes the kind of fine clothing that the sylvan do, and, and speaks in a way that is described under this worldview as something like a sylvan. What we've also implemented with the system is what we're calling a naturalization trajectory. You know, so that means that we can look at the change of your membership in every category uh, over time, over every time step. And so you could look at, say, your movement towards the accepted category. So you see the brushwood where the, the speaking and clothing are raising past some acceptance threshold. And so that's what you think about it as passing, right? passing as a member of, of a different group. Uh, here, and in fact, we can implement a number of kind of phenomena here, and so uh, it, it may be a bit small to see, but these are phenomena such as studied by Irving Gottman I mentioned earlier, stigma allure, right? So where the stigmatized category has a kind of allure within sort of the dominant uh, setting. Disidentifying, you know, that's where you might put on a pair of glasses in order to, even though you're illiterate, to seem as if you're more literate. Yeah, so we begin to be able to model these kind of phenomena say through looking at your naturalization trajectory. So I mentioned you could intentionally pass as a member of another group. Right. You could inadvertently pass and sort of luck your way into it or not be able to, to do it well. You could slip and not finally pass and, and so forth. And so I'll show you a little bit of, of, of the game that, that, uh, that we created. And I need some participation with it uh, as well. So I described it this way, right? The Sylvan, you know, uh, well, we know what they're like, but the Sylvan and Rush would have been at war for ages, and you know that the Sylvan are tall people on average and love poetry and finery. The Brushwood are small, love earthy homespun fabrics and good hearth tales. And remember, you're a Sylvan, you hail from the Sylvan tribe, and you stand before the gate of a keep, and uh, you need to enter the needed sire. So you see a Brushwood guard with sturdy armor. So what do you do? He's preoccupied. You dust off your boots, you adjust your clothes in your gilded mirror, and touch your tunic or hide your fine jewelry. Okay, so you hide your fine jewelry, and he likes that. Right, and you think to yourself of trying to fit into these brushwood. The guard before you looks curious. Right, and so do you speak to him in your own language? Uh, uh, do you say some weather we're having today? Good day, or I hope you're feeling very well. A star shines upon the hour of our meeting. Uh, okay, someone liked this, but the guard didn't. Uh, so it doesn't seem like he wants me in. He has a wary expression. He says, "We don't see many uh, new uh, new folk around this uh, around this uh, part. These parts. Did you travel far to get here? It seemed that he was going to say, uh, we don't see many silver around here. Tis not far from home. Oh yes, good man. This is a strange land to me. Knew him from just around the way, or I'm from a little ways off indeed." Okay, from just this way, and he really likes that. <laughs> and, and his facial expression, you see, is, is changing and trying to fit in. He's ready to sign you up, do nothing, straighten up or slouch. Be approved. And you're trying to fit in. Welcome, I think you'll be at home here. And you think to yourself, well, I got in, so I had to pretend to be something else. Right. Now, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ask you the questions, but just to go through you know, very quickly, and I want to show you, you know, there's a kind of narrative structure you hear uh, that actually comes from the field of sociolinguistics. So we're in entrance clauses, we have different kinds of things. 
So there was a test here for your category membership, right? Uh, so you, you were not part, you're not part of the accepted group based on that. Our trajectory and the accepted group is decreasing and so forth. So that's just showing a little bit of what's going on uh, behind the scenes. And so we'll keep on uh, going through this way with our hands. Doesn't like that. And so you think to yourself, that I'm being, I'm being myself a true Sylvan, but you're not welcome here. And it seemed like once the guard realized I am a Sylvan, he was never going to let me in, in in the first place. Yeah, so there are a number of different kind of endings. So you have green and, and, and uh, pink here. You can get in or not get in. That's what those represent. But we have different kind of themes like acceptance, denial of self, stigma allure, failure, uh, 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 yeah, you know, failure to access, and, and, so, and so forth. And so just to give you an example, so acceptance, let's so say you do everything that he likes, you could get, well, thankfully, I was able to convince him to let me in, which is a kind of positive polarity, you know, but you're oblivious in the situation. But you could have got the theme of denial of self, which is, in fact, what you did get. Right, well, I got in, though I had to pretend to be something I'm not. You could have been yourself the entire time and, then sur and been surprised that the guard actually says, great, welcome. It's great to have a little sylvan flavor around here. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so you can have a number of different ki kind of themes evoked by, by, by the engine. Right, and, and just the, you know, this is on, on our site. We built another, another system. Not all of our systems are, are games. We built a kind of social networking system. So something similar with your musical identity, categorizes you in terms of your musical identity, has bots that speak to you. Your identity isn't an avatar, it's a photo wall that describes your musical tastes, and people kind of push back. Well, you said you like Bebop, but in fact, you really seem to like show tunes now, and, and this, this sort of thing. So anyhow, remember me back from uh, the beginning of, of, of the talk. Yeah, so, so moving towards our conclusion. Well, phantasms like this often remain implicit and uh, invisible for users. And furthermore, are implemented in back-end data structures and algorithms, which is one of the key messages that I want you to take home today. So you can actually sometimes very explicitly with this is girl Boolean in, term, in terms of back-end uh, data structures. Whereas this type of phantasms are computationally modeled explicitly for designing, uh, uh, designed for studying cultural meanings in, in uh, digital media. You know, so which is, again, what I said that we work on. So to sum up, I've introduced uh, an approach to, computationally model to computational modeling that I believe provides powerful means of analyzing and expressing cultural meanings, such as the social identity phenomena I focused on today. And my belief is that this approach enables us to better understand and convey cultural meanings that are implemented through algorithms and uh, data structures and computational media. And finally, uh, apropos of the, the situation, taking the, 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 long, the long view, uh, you know, the idea is that, of course, computing is now pervasive. We all uh, know this. Uh, but what I believe is that the next frontiers of computing must address the issues of expression and culture that are too often dismissed as being soft within, within engineering uh, disciplines and computing. And in fact, what I say is that these are uh, the hard problems, as engineers like to put it, to model, com to model computationally. And so I just want to leave you with a message then that it's uh, imperative to reflect upon the cultural values, the subjective values uh, that, that are built into the infrastructures of this computer-laden society that we're all uh, building and living in together. So thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, and we'll, we'll have a, a few minutes for questions, and then uh, Fox is going to stick around, as we like to do here. Uh, he'll be sticking around, so you can talk to him afterwards. Uh, his book, Phantasmal Media, is uh, on the back table if you'd like to, to buy one or check it out. Uh, thank you so much. So um, before we get uh, get your questions ready, but um, can you tell us, for, for all the different work, and I know there's more work than you had time to, to talk about here, in general, um, how many people here work in technology or in gaming or, or anything like that. So obviously you, you know the, the area you're in, we've got, we've got that they're, they're, uh, they're working out of here every day actually. Um, how much is the work you're doing, you're actually building systems as well as doing these critiques. How much are they available that, that people can use or, or, or look at what you're doing or how much and where are you publishing this stuff? Uh, so the, are, are those, uh, Ideas, uh, right? So you there. can so you could go to our, our website, this one, islab.mit.edu. You know, so there, there's a projects page there. So, so you know, all, a lot of our publications are there. Some of the systems you can uh, use and play with. You know, so the social network music recommendation system uh, uh, is there. Uh, Mimesis, you could play play that game. The system Genie, you know, that, the, again I mentioned, is a Creative Commons license. If you're interested, you could contact me individually. I'd be happy to make that uh, uh, available. So uh, I've been contacted a number of people in different areas. You know, thinking about, yeah, you know, I'm more interested in kind of open-ended, expressive, uh, subjective tools. But some people are interested in issues like uh, diversity within within journalism and responding to some of the social nuances there. And we're interested in how can we use Mimesis to begin thinking the, the, these issues through or more therapeutic uses. So I'm happy to see people push push the systems in new ways. Uh, who's got a question out there? When, uh, down at the end of the bar. Nice. Uh, I really like your points, and I don't want to seem like I'm attacking. Sorry, I want to start by saying I really like your points. Um, in Neverwinter Nights, was it possible for player characters to actually select the other or the both, or, the, or could you just like male and females? So, so about the gender you could select in Neverwinter Nights. Uh, right, it's, it's a good question and very far from an attack. It's, I love the opportunity to clarify. Yeah, so th with the, si the system, it's, it's interesting because Neverwinter Nights was uh, hyped for being a system that actually tries to implement uh, old school patent paper Dungeons and Dragons style gameplay for those that play, played or remember Dungeons and Dragons from the 80s. And so they released, released a, tool, a tool set so people could create adventures for, for others. So you can create you know, other characters, non-player characters, you know, monsters, you know, sort of set up the entire world. And so that data structure actually will be used most likely for the non-player characters as well as other types of uh, uh, creature. In this case, fortunately, we have access to all of that on the back end. But the interesting thing is that it's actually for the default racial types, the types that player characters can be, you know, elves, you know, orcs, half-orcs, you know, or actually elves, half-orcs, humans, uh, halflings, and this sort of thing. You know, those are the characters for which the type that you can play, uh, you know, that you're going to have a default male body type if you set it as uh, you know, the, the both other or none. Right, but you can act, the player can actually select it. You know, the game master can do it, though. I've got a question right there in the middle. Yeah, I want to go back to that image of right. the kid choosing between the two different colored dolls. Right. And sort of racial profiling was implied by that. Imagine if the kid was an algorithm and it was choosing between two different races and it had a data set. And the data set something like white men can't jump. And it was trying to apply a basketball or should the algorithm make a decision based on what the data says and ignore political correctness, or should it be programmed with political correctness and ignore the data? Okay, well, I, I love this question because uh, 
you know, the, the examples I show, you know, I'm oriented toward a particular type of empowerment, but I'm actually interested in is creating more expressive tools. So you can imagine you know, genre fiction uh, authors you know, create a type of fiction to comment on the real world. So you think about Philip K. Dick or Octavia Butler. The idea is this nuanced kind of commentary about the real world, often dystopian, not utopian or politically correct. And so the idea for me is I'd be happy for people to create a game that, say, embeds racial profiling within a game like uh, Grand Theft Auto if it can help to engender critical awareness about, about the system. System, right, rather than just leaving it implicitly implement, implemented within the system. And so the idea for me is very far from the idea of just creating didactic diversity training tools, but actually increasing the expressive range. So you can have characters that respond to e each other. You can have one city that totally inverts the politics of another city and begin to have a lot more expressive power for thinking about, the, for thinking about these, kind, these kind of issues. And finally, I would say that uh, uh, some of the, the insights coming out of, out of cognitive science suggest that the way that these systems typically categorize, it's called a folk or Aristotelian model of, of categories. What that means, every category has some top-down uh, some top-down characteristics. That means if uh, you are in this, uh, so in, in that, you know, if you have this particular racial category, then you always have this kind of attribute distribution and these characteristics and look this way. When in the real world, there's much more nuance and, and fluidity. And so the idea is to replace that very strict top-down system that totally determines everything and replace it with one that actually admits that kind of nuance and, and, and gradients. And, and so then I think it's not really an, a question of the algorithm just defining that yeah, all people that are in this uh, group, if you are of this ethnicity, that means you can't jump. But actually having a system can make much more kind of nuanced obser observations uh, about these kind of phenomena that can say there's a difference between a salient example. That means I've seen three people that uh, can't jump, and so I'm going to make an assumption. And a stereotype, that means I'm building a misleading assumption into my, into my, my, my example. It can make all these fine-grained distinctions between types of categorization. Right. Thanks. Okay. Uh, right there in the second row. So, um, you know, all these games are, you know, basically developed by designers and animators and engineers, and, you know, it's a hot topic debate here in the Bay Area, and a lot of, most of those people are, you know, straight white males, right, which carry a certain amount of bias. And so, you know, if you could solve that problem, and all of a sudden you could equalize it between women and people of color and everything else, you feel like that would solve it, or is there a larger systemic problem at play here that wouldn't really solve it? Right, it's, it's a good question. I think you're talking about two uh, related kind of issues because the question is about the diversity of the industry in general. And so would increasing diversity increase the possibility for diverse worldviews? And so of course there is a kind of a possibility there, but of course everybody exists uh, within the, the uh, society with the same kind of, kind of worldview. So one, one point of the Kenneth Mamie Clark study is that these kids are there from uh, 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 you know, they're, they're African-American students, but still exhibiting that, that kind of worldview, right? So that's just one part of, of the issue. Actually, for me, when I, when I talk about cultural computing in the book, first, first, that's just the issue of being aware that all technical systems are cultural systems that have values uh, you know, built into them. And so one of the, uh, one of the, the alumni of, uh, of the MIT AI lab, Phil Agri, did some work that, that I was quite uh, inspired by. It's a theory that he calls critical technical practices. That means engineers need to reflect critically Upon, upon the kind of values that are being built into, into their systems. In some cases, he traces failures of AI systems to this exact, exact issue. And so I would say, 
first being aware of the values that we're building into the, into the infrastructures themselves. And that's one thing that, the, that some of the techniques in the book that try to provide. There's a concept called morphic semiotics I described in chapter four. And, and then one of, the, one of the other kind of uh, issues is that engaging a diversity of different worldviews might uh, you know, lend itself to you know, different kind of innovative uh, practices. But it's not just going to, you know, I mean, of course, it's great to, to diversify the, work, the workforce in a number of different kind of ways. So the, you know, economists have shown the ways that this engenders new forms of creativity and innovation and so forth. But it's not going to fall out just, be, just because of you know, any one you know, individual. Actually, it's a kind of critical practice that, that all designers have to take part in. And I think um, one thing that might be a, a good illustration is we, we talked about the, the eBay, the way eBay sellers are, are recognized, especially when you map that back to making a purchase from a merchant in the real world, you find that you have uh, less of the vocabularies or the, the elements that, uh, that that seller is expressing uh, their, their identity with. Are very limited, right? Do you uh, right, want to say something right, about yeah, that? Yeah, so I can, I can, I, I can tell the story that I'm happy to describe. You know, so this is, uh, so, so everybody knows what we're talking about. So this is the story of uh, Braun, you know, yes, and, and, and it's the story of Braun going to, to the bazaar. And so the idea uh, here is that uh, you have this guy, uh, Braun, that loves to shop and he loves to buy, right? But he has a particular set of preferences, right? He thinks you can only trust a, a good man when you buy. He wants to see people dressed in the, uh, adorned in, in the style of his own clan. He wants to see people have good hygiene have other people walking away with smiles and so forth from the seller. And the question that you raise is what happens when Braun encounters a seller that looks like this, right? And so what in fact happens, what to Braun is this, right? He's just confused. Uh, you know, but, but the point that, that I raise uh, in the book is that even if you just look at this aspect of the seller, right, just the name and it's a star rating and number rating, you have a number of ways that could be represented in the back end, right? You could describe it in terms of a string, an integer, and a GIF file. Uh, uh, although using the term GIF is <laughs> controversial these days, since uh, the <laughs> creator described it as a GIF. Uh, you could, but you could also describe it as a matrix, uh, say some number of pixels. You could compare the value of the feedback score much more quickly, say using integer. But you could compare the, the saturation of the star better using, using this representation. But you could also have used this representation, right? eBay could have implemented a maleness indicator, a hygiene indicator, a facial hair descriptor, you know, portraits of previous buyers, and a video chat window. And, and so the point uh, being uh, that each of these actually encodes a set of values, right? The eBay one is much more familiar to us. We're, we're accustomed to it. But uh, it's no less value-laden than, than the one that, that, that Ron suggests. And so again, that's just one example of critical technical practice going back and looking at the fact that this isn't a kind of uh, objective, acultural representation. It has cultural values, and maybe for good reason, based on user testing and so forth. But they're always built into the system, and in fact, uh, both uh, represent a type of phantasm. That's great. All right. Uh, we, we hope you'll hang out uh, a bit longer, uh, have a chance to speak with uh, Fox directly. Thanks again so much for coming out tonight, uh, for being a part of this series. Uh, Fox, this is a, a long now challenge coin. I want to give you the thank you for, for speaking to us for tonight. Uh, thanks. My Let's, pleasure and honor. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.